Thanks for listening to the Theology for the Rest of Us podcast by J.R. Foresteros. This is a class I taught at Beaver Creek Church of the Nazarene, so from time to time you'll hear questions being asked by the class. I do my best to repeat them so that you won't be lost as you listen. You can find more of my podcasts at my website, jrforesteros.com, and at storyman.us, where I co-host with Matt Michelados and Clay Morgan. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the class. A couple of quick notes as we're getting started. We'll talk about this a little bit more at the end as well, but I am recording this to podcast it, so the good news, that doesn't particularly matter for you unless you think you might miss a class here or there as we move forward. Uh, if that's the case, then you can just download it uh, from the internet and listen to it, listen to what you miss. Uh, why that will actually matter more to you is that uh, as we move through tonight, if you have questions uh, and you ask them, I will probably try to repeat them so that the people who do listen on the recording will get to hear your uh, excellent questions and not just have to guess at what they were based on what they hear me saying in response. So uh, that being said, welcome to Theology for the Rest of Us. Uh, I was originally going to call this class Theology for Dummies uh, because that is really the level of accessibility that I want this to have. I think theology is a big scary word a lot of times. Uh, it can be intimidating. It's, I actually heard someone in here when they were saying, what does theology sound like? It said it sounds like smart people religion or something like that. And that, that is the connotation of the word. Uh, that is not what theology needs to mean. And hopefully by the end of the night, you will be convinced that theology is actually something that you can take a crack at and do better at uh, and you think that you can. So uh, with that in mind, tell me a little bit about some of the discussion that you had, particularly about theology. Were there any questions that anyone had or any insights that someone in your group shared that you found interesting or wish that you had thought of or anything like that? We didn't get that far. You didn't get that far. Okay. Well, good. Hey, I don't mind that. Love, love to hear some good conversation going on. All right. Well... Don't worry, you all get more talkative as we go through the class. Uh, this is going to be a 10-week class, but we're going to take a couple weeks off here and there for some stuff. We'll talk about schedule at the end. And uh, again, the goal of the class is basically to convince you that you too are a theologian. We'll talk more about that in a minute. But uh, what I wanted to start with this idea is basically trying to define what we're going to be doing in this class. Okay? Uh, we're talking about theology. I heard a couple of people define it well already, but it comes from two Latin words, or Greek, Greek, comes from some old language, um, one of them, and theology just means words about God, okay, words about God, so if you have ever used words and they were about God, then that makes you a theologian, doesn't necessarily make you a good theologian, but it does make you a theologian, so uh, I have a few examples that I found that are fairly recent examples, did anyone see the Superman movie that came out over the summer, just me, okay, a few of us, there's a scene in that movie where Superman is up in space and he's talking to his uh, father who sent him to Earth from above and he holds his hands out like this and while he's standing in this position, his father says, you can save them all, son. Okay, now, you might think that was a coincidence, but it probably wasn't. Okay, when you put your body in the shape of a cross and then someone says, you can save them all, that's clear God imagery. Right? And so you can watch the Superman movie and you can say, okay, they're clearly trying to make him a Jesus figure. You know, what kind of Jesus is he? And is that the kind of Jesus we see in the Bible or not? And is it, you know, is it, you can start talking about this silly summer blockbuster theologically because it's having a theological conversation. Superman is having a theological conversation. Not necessarily a good one, but it is one. 
Kanye West just put out a new album. He's a rapper. If you haven't heard of him, he has a song on there called I Am A God. And in that song, he says, I just talked to Jesus. He said, what up, Jesus? I know he the most high, but I am a close high. I am a God. That's a theological claim. <laughs> no, I don't think so. I'm not sure exactly what his denomination is, but uh, Kanye, Kanye actually talks about God a lot in his music. Uh, again, it's not necessarily good, but he talks about God. That makes him some kind of a theologian. And he sells a lot of records, which means a lot of people are buying into the Kanye school of theology. Okay, So Kanye is talking about God, whether or not you choose to. Right? Superman has some things to say about God. Uh, Billy Corgan, I don't know if there, we have any Smashing Pumpkins fans in here. They're an alt-rock band from the 90s. Well, they're still around today. But uh, he recently was uh, interviewed, I think it was like CNN Asia or something like that. But it, there's a little two-minute video clip that went all over the internet a couple weeks ago. And in there, he said that God is the third rail of rock music. No one wants to talk about God in rock music, but he said everyone should be. Billy Corgan, and if you, if you listen to Smashing Pumpkins, you know he talks about God all the time. He's got some serious issues, and he's constantly thinking about and singing about God and kind of wor working out his faith in his music. So Billy Corgan is a theologian, and he thinks more people should be theologians than are right now. And then uh, you can even look, if we want to get, we've talked about everything else, we might as well talk about politics. If you want to get into the healthcare debate, there's a big part of the healthcare debate that's about whether or not religious organizations have the right to draw certain kinds of boundaries when it comes to healthcare. And when you dig down in that debate, what we're really talking about is what role God can or should have in our public life as a country. And that's a theological question because we're really talking about God and all of the things that flow from God. So you can't even get away from theology when it comes to politics as much as we think we want to separate church and state or whatever. Right? You just can't get away from that because God ends up everywhere and everyone ends up thinking about and talking about God. And I know that you're in this class because you think about and either do talk about or at least want to talk about God. And so that makes you a theologian. We're all theologians. It's actually not hard to be a theologian. right? All you have to do is think about God. And no surprise that we're at a church and we think about God and we talk about God. right? So when we're talking about theology, that's what we're talking about. And if we're going to start talking about theology somewhere, it would be best to begin in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, at the very beginning of the Bible. Uh, Genesis 1, 1 says, you can look it up, or I'm, I'm just going to be reading a lot. Uh, for, I think it's actually on your papers as well. Um, Genesis 1, 1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Yeah, this is one of those verses that if you have like three Bible verses memorized, like it's John three sixteen and this one and Jesus wept. So you probably already knew uh, this one. Um. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The story, about, the story of the scriptures begins with God and God creating. And so that's where we're going to start. We're going to start uh, in God's story. And we're going to, that's where we're going to spend the rest of the time, you know, kind of starting from there and moving through there. But what's really interesting, if you're a, the more, I'll say it this way, the more you study theology... And the more, you know, you can get into all the fancy $20 words and all the different perspectives and the famous theologians from throughout time and who said what and all that. What you start to realize is that uh, there are very few things in the Bible, in the story of God, that God seemed overly concerned to spell out for us. And the way we know that is because there are tons and tons and tons and tons of faithful, uh, spiritually minded Christians who have been trying to sort out all of this talk about God. 
and they don't agree about almost anything. <laughs> Like, I mean, uh, you would think some of these things, some of these things that people make life and death, and they, 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 the way they talk about them, like the whole fate of everything hinges on them, and it's just not very clear in the scriptures. Uh, and er, you see all these different denominations that have their different uh, stances on it. And, and we're a denomination. We have particular stances on lots of things. Uh, but as we'll see in a minute, we're a little bit more, I don't know, open-handed when we, and generous when we deal with some of our Christian brothers and sisters. You know, something like eternal security, once saved, always saved. Um, we have a particular stance on that as Nazarenes. And it's different from our Catholic brothers and sisters, our Baptist brothers and sisters, and all the other 500 and however many bajillion denominations there are. And, of course, we all think we're right, right? But what's fascinating about that is that there are just so few things that we all agree on. There are so few things that, like, we are just unquestionably all in one voice Celebrating together and not spending all of our time arguing with each other about. Uh, what, what we should do with that is just enter into this whole process with a little bit of humility. And the fact that you took a class called Theology for the Rest of Us probably means you're already feeling pretty humble when it comes to talking about God anyway. So that's probably more for me than for you. But uh, this, is, this is what we're going to try to do. We want to hold these things lightly. We want to ask questions carefully and we want to try to ask them well. And we, we just want a lot of humility when it comes to these things, we want to say, you know, this, this, as best as I understand it and, and where I am in my faith right now, this is what makes sense to me. This is what I think the scriptures tell me. This is what seems to be right. But unless you're willing to say that you're the first person at whatever age you are in the history of the world to have everything figured out and got God, you know, 100% right, then have some humility. Be ready to say, but I might be wrong, you know, and what are the things that I'm, what are the things that are non-negotiable? What are those things that the church kind of all agrees about? And then what are the things that are some gray areas? And uh, I know I, I don't know everyone in here, but I know a lot of you. If you know me, you know that gray areas doesn't mean just throw up your hands and sing kumbaya and all just get along, right? You, you still argue about them, argue in the nice way, like the formal way. You still discuss them together. You still wrestle with them together. It's not like you just say these things don't matter. They do matter, right? Otherwise, we wouldn't have theology. Otherwise, we wouldn't be in church together. It's just that uh, we don't let them divide us. We don't let them separate us. We don't let them cause divisions. We, we instead r- wrestle with them together and, and consider them together. And I'm speaking in such broad terms that some of you are saying, can we have some practical examples? And that's what the whole rest of the whole 10 weeks is about. So, yes, we're going to get into all of that kind of stuff. I'm going to do my best to help you kind of orient yourself in the, in the discussions and all of that. But, but just know at the outset what we, the, the attitude and the posture that we want to assume as we go into this is one of love and one of humility and one of respect for people who disagree with us. Uh, I actually sort of assume that we all in here don't agree with each other about everything, even though we probably don't know what those things are. And that's okay. That's actually better in a lot of cases, because that's how we grow. You know, we grow by being around people who are different from us, who challenge us, who make us consider things. Uh, I was actually talking with one of our uh, leadership team members before class started tonight, and we were discussing something, and she was sharing with me a thing that she's like, I've just been raised all my life to think this, and I didn't even, I didn't ever think why. And then someone asked me why, and I was like, uh, I don't know, just because, I guess. You know, and that's why it's good to be around people who are different from us, who are going to ask us those things, because an unconsidered belief isn't a very strong belief. You know, the things that you love, the things that you cherish, the things that you're willing to, uh, to stand up for are the things that, that are yours, not just things that you inherited, right? And so that's what we're going to be doing in here is really, really what I'm going to be doing is more helping you learn to think theologically 
than anything else. I hope that you didn't come here to just to find out all the things I believe in and then you believe them too, because that's boring and uninteresting and ultimately not helpful for you. Uh, you don't want my relationship with God. You want your relationship with God. And so I'm, think of me more as like your Master Yoda. Like I'm here to guide you and help you become the greatest Jedi of all time. So uh, if you haven't seen Star Wars, that's a Star Wars reference. Uh, okay, so what are my goals for this class? What am I expecting and hoping uh, for you as I'm preparing each week as we're coming into this space together? Uh, first of all, I drew you some nice pictures. Uh, you see that everything is theological. That's my first hope for you. Okay? See, in, in our lives, in our world, we tend to divide everything into things that are sacred or things that are godly or things that like, are God-type things like religion and then everything else. So, like, you know, Sunday is church day and every other day is every other day. You know, we have work and we have church. We have home and we have church. But we have, like, God gets some stuff and other things are other things. Uh, I want to read, and I think it should be on your page. I want to read a, a hymn. This is one of the earliest songs that the Christian church that we have. Okay, it's probably, it was probably written in the decade after Jesus rose from the dead. Okay, so it's just a really old song. It's, it's included in the book of Colossians. Uh, And this is what it says. It says, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created, and he is supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. So there, I mean, there right away, God created everything. Everything, not just the godly things and the other stuff just kind of happened, right? But God God created everything. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones and kingdoms and rulers and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him. And for him. He existed before anything else and he holds all creation together. Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. He is the beginning, supreme over all who rise from the dead. So he is first in everything. For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ, and through him God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. So hopefully the first thing that will happen as we begin to think about God, and maybe you already do, maybe you already think this way, but you'll begin to see that there's no such thing as sacred and secular, right? God is in all things. God is through all things. All things that we have come from God. Everything we do, we do through God's provision and will. And, and God has claim on all parts of our lives. There's no such thing as the thing that God doesn't care about or that God isn't interested in. So when we talk about God... That means we talk about everything, right? The questions that we ask about our jobs, how we act at work, when it's time to leave a job, when it's time to take a new job, all of these kinds of things, those are theological questions. They should be, right? When it comes to our families, when it comes to our relationships, uh, when it comes to uh, driving our cars. For some people that might have road rage in this room, I won't ask anyone to raise hands because I do, Uh, uh, right? All of these things are theological questions. They should be, because everything should be a theological question. We can ask, we can ask uh, how God, uh, how to see everything the way God would have us to see it. And that kind of brings me to the second, the second thing is that uh, once you, once you believe that everything is theological, then you begin to think theologically. You start to ask theological kinds of questions. And really what ends up happening, the way this, the way this starts to work is you begin to discern that God is telling a story that began with the creation of heaven and earth and that has continued through since then. And it, it, you know, all of the scriptures are a part of that story. The long tradition, or the long history of the church is part of that story. And then you begin to see that your story is a part of that story. 
You're going to see that, that you know, uh, if, I, if I were to tell you to turn back around to your groups and share your stories with each other, right, you'd probably talk about where you were from. You'd probably talk about where you went to school. You'd probably talk about your vocation. You, you'd share different things about yourself that you think define you, that you think make you who you are. And when you begin to see that all of those things are a part of this much bigger story God is telling, that your story is, is a component of that, then you begin to think about things theologically. You begin to see the world theologically. You begin to, get, you begin to wonder, well, if this is what God is doing in my life, what is God doing over there? And how could I, how could I know what that is? You know, um, If all of these political issues that we you know, fight about all the time matter to us, they probably matter to God too, and there's probably like a particular perspective that God has on these things. How, how would I know what that is? Right? And, and you, you start to wonder in all these different places in your life, what does this look like from a theological perspective? What does this look like when it matters not just to me, but also to God? You know, what, is, what does reconciliation with my family look like if suddenly God is a part of it? You know, what does how I treat my coworkers at work look like if suddenly God is a part of that conversation? Right? And, 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 and listen, there's not, like a, there's not like, a, like a formula or a flow chart or something like that where you can say, you know, we'll start here and then read this verse and then you'll figure it out. Like, it, it's a habit you have to adopt. It's a way of seeing the world that you gradually come to understand. It's, it's not really too much unlike learning a foreign language for any of you that have done that. I mean, you've got to start somewhere, and you get better and better and better at it. You mess up sometimes, and you just keep getting better. You practice, you practice seeing things theologically and thinking uh, you know, the, way that, the way God sees the world. So I want you to see that everything is theological. I hope, I hope that will happen. I hope that you begin to think theologically about things. And then last, I, I hope you become a good theologian. Okay? Because like we said, everyone talks about God. So it's, it's not a question of am I a theologian or aren't I a theologian. You are a theologian. So I hope that you become a good one. I hope that, I hope that, through, this, I hope that through this class you develop some tools and you develop some skills at being able to discern uh, you know, what fits and what doesn't. And, and that you begin to be able to see uh, not just how you read the scriptures, but how you participate in entertainment. Again, how you are at work, how you are, and that every sphere of your life begins to make a different kind of sense uh, because you're approaching it from a theological perspective. You'll be able to, I don't know, you know, interact with pop culture, with politics, with your families, with, uh, you know, in all these different places. And it will just be, it'll be different because uh, you're doing it theologically. All right. I want to stop before we move on. Because now I want to ask, how do we do that? Because I, I know I just threw a bunch of stuff at you, and you're thinking, like, okay, that all sounds abstract. Uh, does it get more practical than that? And yes, it does. But before we move there, do you guys have any questions or thoughts or comments? All right. Here we go. Uh, I'm going to introduce – oh, I didn't write that here. Sorry. I'm going to introduce to you, you to something called the Wesleyan Quadrilateral. I can't write and talk at the same time, so. Um, so this is, a, this is a tool that our particular theological tradition uses uh, when we talk about theology. When we ask that question, well, how do we think theologically well, how do we do that? Well, how do we make sure that we are uh, doing that in a healthy way, in a helpful way, in a way that's ultimately bringing us closer to God? And so uh, we actually have four different um, sources for our 
theology. And so I've got the four of them drawn up here. Also, I am a, I am a teacher. I am not an artist. So uh, one, don't judge my art. Two, if someone's a better artist, then this is just like nails on a chalkboard for you. Uh, you are welcome to be my artist. And I would love to pass that off to someone who's better at this than I am. So you'll just have to show up early uh, and we can talk about that. So first of all, the first and the most important one and the probably one that, that is least surprising to anyone is scripture and the Bible. Uh, we, and this is one of those things that's like not really up for debate. Like you're not really going to find a church that's like, yeah, we don't really think the Bible's that important. Like, you know, like this is one of those few things that, that no matter what your other theological differences, all uh, Christian denominations value the scripture as authoritative in the life of the church and particularly as our source of theology. So when we're talking about words about God, it's hard to get better words about God than the ones in the Bible. So uh, we're big fans. And as Wesleyans, we say that this, that's why I put it up on top. This is like our, this is like our primary source uh, when we are learning theology, okay, and when we're thinking, when we're learning to think theologically. So uh, there's a baseline assumption about the book, about the book, the Bible, the, the books in the Bible, that it doesn't really try to go out of its way to prove because it assumes that you already think that way, and that is that there is a God, okay, you're not going to find any philosophical arguments in the Bible for the existence of God. The Bible assumes from the get-go that there is a God and that this God is active in the world. And um, that's, now that's, that is an assumption, okay? Uh, there are plenty of people in the world that don't believe that. Uh, they're just not going to be able to go to the Bible for proof. The Bible just assumes that you already believe in God and that when things like, you know, a wind blows over the Red Sea and splits it apart so that the Israelites can walk across it, uh, it assumes that was God. Where someone else might be like, I don't know, it was like an earthquake or something, or it didn't really happen, you know, whatever, right? So, so you're not, you're not really going to find proofs of the existence of God in the scriptures. And if you're, uh, some, if you're a Christian, if you're someone who already believes in God, that's really usually not a problem for you. But again, just understand if you have friends who are not Christians, who, who are adherents of some other faith, or if they're atheist or agnostic or something like that, that's going to be a big stumbling block out of the gate. You know, when I, I went to my undergrad, I was at a private Christian school, not too dissimilar from Mount Vernon, you know, and, and the ultimate trump card was, well, the Bible says, you know, and if you could quote the best Bible verse, you won your debate. And then I went to graduate school and studied religion at the University of Missouri. I was in a secular program. And the first time I tried my trump card and I was like, well, the Bible says this. And they were like, well, I don't care what the Bible says. I don't really believe it. And I was like, I'm out. I don't know what to do now. Like, uh, you know, I kind of had to learn how to have a different set of theological conversations at that point when my, uh, when my biblical trump card didn't work anymore. So uh, again, that's just more, more, and again, I know that most of you are sort of aware of that kind of debate and that kind of problem already. Uh, but, but when we're talking about Christian theology, we all already assume that there is a God who is active in the world and that the Bible is a record of that God's interaction in, his, in, in human history. Okay, uh, The Bible that we use, the Protestant Bible, has 66 books. Uh, it's divided up into two big categories, the Old Testament and the New Testament. And essentially, that's like pre-Jesus and then post-Jesus. Uh, Testament is another word for covenant, which we have a whole week on covenants coming up, but it's the, the old covenants before Jesus, and then it's the new covenant that God enacted in the person and work of Jesus. And so essentially in the Old Testament, what you have is uh, all of the record of, of God's work in the people of Israel and after Israel is destroyed and all of that kind of stuff. And then beginning in the New, Te the new Testament begins uh, with a genealogy and then the birth of Jesus. And so uh, that's the difference between those two big divisions. And what's fascinating, I don't know how many of you have sat down and started in Genesis and tried to work your way through, 
Uh, I did that a few times and always got tripped up. I, if I made it through Leviticus, numbers just killed me. Uh, I could never just do that. I have to, if I read the whole Bible, I have to break it up. Uh, uh, and what you find quickly when you read the Bible, the reason I said that, is, is that it, it's filled with tons of different genres of literature, right? There's history, there's story, there's poetry, there's like Proverbs and pithy wisdom sayings, there's ancient legal code, which is super interesting, uh, there's <laughs> letters, there's weird stuff like whatever Revelation is, right? There's just like all this different literature in this one book that we call the Bible. Uh, now, Bible is, it's from the Greek, it means library, so I mean, we kind of admitted even in what we called it that it's this big collection of all these different kinds of books written by tons of different people over a huge amount of human history, okay? And um, what, what, what the Bible is, it is a collection, a record of God's work in human history, Okay, these are these are books that were written by people who were having experiences of what this God was doing in human history. And they wrote about it. And again, some of them were poets. Some of them were historians. Some of them were apparently lawyers. And they they wrote these records. They recorded what God was doing in their particular place in their particular time. And then all of the books got collected together. And that's what we have today. Now, I want to make a quick note. Uh, on translations, because we're going to be using a lot of scripture as we move through this class. And this is a personal preference. Some Christians make what version of the Bible you use, one of those like make or break, live or die theological arguments. Okay, I don't. There is a version of the Bible that was printed in the Middle Ages, and they left the word not out of the, I think it's the seventh commandment. So it said, thou shalt commit adultery. Other than that one, Okay, uh, I have not encountered a translation of the scriptures that is actively going to harm your relationship with God. So I recommend to people when they ask me what version they should use, I say one that you can understand. Okay, one that is meaningful to you. If that is the King James version of the Bible, congratulations, you should probably be an English professor somewhere. Okay. Some of us were raised on the King James, and that's just how God sounds to us. I still have the 23rd Psalm of the Lord's Prayer memorized in King James English, right? So that's fine. There's nothing wrong with the King James. It is antiquated. No one talks like that anymore, okay? So if you can't understand that, don't feel bad. Uh, I teach and preach, and you guys have seen this. Actually, we do this on Sunday mornings even. We use the New Living Translation, and the only reason for that is because it is the most understandable, Okay? That's, that's it. There's no, there's no deeper meaning or purpose behind it. I study personally out of the New Revised Standard. Uh, the New American Standard is great if you like really wooden literal translations of the Greek and Hebrew. Right? The NIV is one that tons and tons of people use. And that's the thing. There's, just, there's not a bad, other than that one, the one, uh, there is not a bad translation. There's not one that you're going to read it and God's, you're going to get to heaven and God's going to be like, uh, you, sorry, you totally misunderstood everything because you were using the message. I'm sorry. Like, uh, that's, just, that's just not going to happen. Okay. So the most important thing when you are choosing a translation of the Bible is that you can understand it. And if you come to me and you're like, this is the one that makes the most sense and it doesn't make a lick of sense to me, great, good for you because I'm not the one reading your Bible for you. So what, what matters is that you can understand it. Uh, I'm going to continue to use the New Living Translation in here. That's what's on. That's the, the one that's on your papers and stuff. If you brought a Bible with you that you're more comfortable with, you can read ahead in the notes a little bit and flip to it and read out of your own translation when we get to there. That's fine. Um, and, and what? so now back to the Bible. The, the reason we put it on the top of the quadrilateral 
is because we say that it's our first and most important witness to God. Okay, that that the the scripture is sort of our guiding uh, our guiding witness to God, uh, and, and the reason for that is because we say the, the the language that we use in the church is that the Bible is inspired by God. Okay, now that's tricky language, and I have this nice little spectrum here to talk about the different uh, ideas about inspiration. Okay, now uh, I have a particular take on this, which I'll tell you in a minute, but I just want to walk you through them. Uh, so the idea is, how did God give us the Bible? Okay, in what sense do we say that we encounter God through the scriptures? Okay, and there's, again, there's different people have different ideas. On one, and it's all on a spectrum. On one far extreme of the spectrum is what's called divine dictation. And that means basically that God took over the writer in some way and dictated word for word exactly what God wanted to be on the page. So God, basically, God was the author, not the person. Okay, God was the one writing, and the person was just sort of like a vessel. I don't know why God couldn't write it himself, but that, like, that's the that's the that's the uh, the idea. Okay. Now, on the far other end of the spectrum, you could probably put it together, right? Is that God didn't actually have any real active part in it? It's just that the person was like really spiritual. You know, some people are just like kind of like more spiritually tuned than other people, and they just kind of are wiser. I mean, really, in life, like we know people that are just like they all, you know, they say something, and you're always like, man, that was just like really deep. Like, whoa. Like, like okay, we could like hanging out with those people sometimes, right? And so the idea would be on the far other end of the spectrum is that it's just kind of those people who wrote the scriptures. God wasn't actively doing anything, God didn't really have any active role in what they wrote. They're just like more spiritually minded. And so the book, the Bible represents like a collection of like the, the all-time greatest hits of, like, uh, you know, Christian and Jewish faith, right? Does that make sense, that, like, the perspective? Okay. Um, now, as you might imagine, the Church of the Nazarene falls somewhere in the middle. Uh, we believe that, and actually the, the, uh, the metaphor that I like the most for this, and it, we'll, uh, tipping our hat a little bit for later, but uh, is, is that the, the scripture is fully inspired by God, but also fully a work of human culture. Uh, it's, it's 100% both. It's not like 50-50 or 75-25 or something like that. Uh, this is also the way we talk about Jesus, which we'll get to when we get to talking about Jesus, right? That Jesus is fully human and fully God, and it's both at the same time, and there's no contradiction. And uh, one of my favorite scholars suggests that we see the scriptures the same way, that we don't ask, well, like, how much, like, was it 100% God or is it 100% human or was it, like, 50-50, but that it, it was both, that, that everything that we have in the scriptures is what God wanted in the scriptures, but it was also written by individual people in particular cultures at particular times. Both at the same time, 100%. And if that seems hard to wrap our brains around, well, it's not going to be the last thing that happens in this class that we have our mind wrapping our brains around. Sorry. Okay, yeah, Jesse. Um, so why does the uh, Catholic Bible have... Ah, uh, yes. So if you know, uh, if you have any Catholic friends or... Orthodox friends, uh, we'll, we'll actually talk about that a little bit more when we get to tradition, but if you've ever looked at one of their Bibles, they have a whole bunch of extra books, well, not a whole bunch, there's a few extra books, uh, called the Apocrypha, okay, or some of the Catholics call it the Deuterocanonical books, which means a second canon, and essentially these are books, for the most part, that were written between the Old Testament and the New Testament, and uh, 
there's not really a good reason that we took them out, uh, believe it or not. The, re the main reason that they were excluded, and we're kind of jumping a little bit ahead, but the main reason they were excluded is because they're kind of Old Testament-like books. They're before Jesus, but they were written in Greek because they were a little bit later. And so when uh, during the Protestant Reformation, when Martin Luther and John Calvin and some of the Reformers were breaking away from the Catholic Church, they took these books out. Um, now, it depends on how charitable you want to be towards Martin Luther, if you think this was a good idea or a bad idea. Um, some people think he was the champion of truth. Other people think that some of the really good verses that they were using to make him look bad were coming from the Apocrypha. So he was like, I don't even believe in those anyway. Uh, so again, it just kind of depends on how charitable you're being. Uh, if you've never read the Apocrypha, it's all you can Google. They're all up for, you can get them all for free online. They're mostly just like history books. Like the like, if you ever wonder where Hanukkah came from, the story of that is in the books of Maccabees, which is uh, before it's it's it was like the about 150 years before Jesus was born. Uh, there's a really fun story called Bell and the Dragon, which is actually like a, it was like some deleted scenes from the book of Daniel, uh, where he fights a dragon and stuff like that. It's kind of fun. Uh, so there's some just some stories like that. Uh, obviously, we don't teach or preach out of them in the Church of the Nazarene because we are Protestant and we don't hold them as scripture. But that's where those came from. So the second part. Of it, yeah. So would. Uh... Yeah, so the question is, do other, uh, do Protestant denominations consider the uh, Apocrypha less inspired? And actually, even the, even the Catholic Church considers them like a little bit lower than the rest of Scripture. That's why they're separated out, even in the Catholic Bible. And so we call, we call, the, script, we call the Bible, you'll hear it referred to as the canon of Scripture, and that's an old word that just meant like measuring stick, so it's like what you measure yourself against. Right? That's why we call it our authority. And so when the, when the Catholics refer to it as the deuterocanonical books, they, it's the second canon. Right? So it's like you've got the canon, and then you've got like the second canon. So they, they, can, they would, okay, this might be too much. If you have Catholic friends, you can ask them about this, and I'll probably get in trouble. But it, <laughs> it, might, be, it might be comparable to how we would look at a book by someone like Rick Warren or Max Lucado or something like that, where it's like, I mean, I have a lot of friends that when they read a book by one of those guys that's really meaningful, they pass it on to their other friends because they say, hey, I think this will help you spiritually. It helped me spiritually. And, and so we, it's not like when we say the Bible is canon, we say those are the only texts that the Holy Spirit can work through. But we just, you know, we, we do believe. And so I, I would, I need, to check, I need to check my sources to see if that, but they, they don't even put it on quite the same level of scripture. And we as Protestants don't hold it on the level of scripture at all. Now, again, if you read them, you're going to find things that are meaningful in there because they are still records of what God is doing in history. But just as a, as a denomination and as a church, we have not said that these are texts that we consider to be authoritative, certainly not on the level of, of our scriptures. So is that answer? Okay. No, that's great. Uh, I figured that was going to come up at some point, so I'm glad it came up there. Uh, now... What are, what we, so, so again, we, we're kind of somewhere here in the middle when it comes to our view of inspiration. And, and again, what, what, uh, the way I like to describe it the best is that we believe that the scriptures are fully God and fully human, that they're fully a work of the Holy Spirit, but they're also fully embedded in cultures. And that if you really want to understand 
what the Bible means for us today, you need to understand what it meant to its original readers. Because that, those, that's the people that were alive and that it was written to when the Holy Spirit originally inspired it. And so by understanding the original context of, of various passages, uh, you can gain a much deeper insight into what the Spirit is trying to tell us today. Um, what we say about the Bible as a denomination is that it is, it is, it is sufficient for all things pertaining to salvation. Which means, in shorthand, it means if the Bible was all you had, it would be enough for you to have a saving relationship with God. Okay? Um, and that, that is an intentionally narrow statement that our denomination makes. Uh, we do not necessarily think the Bible is a science textbook or a history textbook or anything like that. But we believe that it's all you need to have a saving relationship with God. And that if, if again, that, that everything you need to know about God and everything you need to know about yourself and everything you need to know about uh, sin and atonement and all, all the words we're going to be talking about for the rest of this class, everything you need to know about those is, is in the scriptures. And if it's not in the scriptures, you don't need to know it when it comes to your salvation. You're not going to, again, you're not going to get to heaven and God's not going to be like, oh, you didn't read 2 Maccabees? Whoops. Should have checked Google. You know, that's not going to happen. Um, does that make sense? Okay. Uh, every, and that, that, there again, everything else is secondary. And I think what, what's important about that is that shows us that what God really, really, really cares about is restoring relationship with us. That's the most important thing. That's the thing that there's not disagreement over. That's the thing that we're all pretty unanimous about is what, what salvation looks like, what, what our plight is and how God rescues us. That's, that's what we're clear about. Everything else we fight about, and it's interesting if you like fighting about stuff like that. Otherwise, it's okay. It's not, it's not the primary thing. It's not the most important thing. What's really fascinating to me about the Bible, and people ask all the time, too, another, another question besides the Apocrypha is, is, well, how did books get in the Bible? Okay? And the problem is there's not really one way. Like, all of the, each of the books kind of has its own history of how it got included in the canon. The only thing that every book has in common is that every church that used it, or at least most of the churches, that, most of the individual congregations that used these books found that when they used them in their worship, the Holy Spirit spoke to them in a, in a, in a meaningful and unique and powerful way through this text and not through other texts. So uh, any, anyone who's read the Da Vinci Code or any, any of that hubbub, you know that there's like probably a few dozen different Gospels out there, right? We have four in our, in our Bible, but there's like, there's dozens of them, okay? There's like a Gospel of Mary and a Gospel of Peter and a Gospel of all kinds of different people, right? And all of these books were in circulation, just like our four Gospels, okay? Again, it's not like, it's not like Paul was on his way to another church and, you know, Jesus dropped this four out of the sky and he was like, oh, oh, you know, that's not what happened, right? A guy named Matthew wrote one and then a guy named, you know, they, they all got written and they all got passed around and circulated. And uh, what happened over time, or, and it was actually about 300, 400 years, was it was kind of like a sifter, right? Like the, the whole church all over the world kept using all these different books and reading them. And, pa and when, when they would discern that the spirit was working through one in their congregation, they would pass it along just like we do today, right? They say like, I think you'll find this book really helpful. Like we really discern the Holy Spirit working through this book. And then enough churches did that, that again, the cream rose to the top, so to speak, right? That the ones that were clearly inspired by God were clearly inspired by God. And the rest, 
got put on various shelves. Like, these are good, but not inspired. Or like, these are buckets of crazy, and you should probably just stay away from them. Okay? Um, so, yeah, Marsha, do you have a question? Yes. Go, go for it. Okay, so, because I'm still way at Bible 101. Great. So, uh, gospel. It's a person. It's a, it's a writing. It's a book. What, yes. What okay, good. Question is, what is a gospel? Okay? The word gospel literally means good news. Okay, so when you hear two people talk about the good news, that's, it's, just a, it's a Greek word that meant good news. Okay, uh, Originally, it was used by like the Roman emperors when, like, when a new Caesar was born or when they won a victory or something like that. They'd, they'd send uh, gospelers out. They'd send people out announcing the good news. They were called evangelists, okay, taking the good news out. And they'd say, hey, good news, there's a new king. Or good news, we won that war. Good news, we did, you know, we did this cool thing. And what they meant was it's good news for us. And because we're in charge, it better be good news for you too, right? Okay? That was kind of the, the undertone of the word gospel and what these, these evangelists would go around announcing. So when Christians, and we'll talk more about this a week on Jesus, right? But when Christians wanted to start talking about Jesus as the king of kings and the lord of lords and the firstborn over all creation and all of this stuff, they said, you know, we need a word to describe this. And they said, you know what? It's good news. There's a new king in town. And it is good news for everyone, not just for the people who cozy up to Rome. And so they, start, they stole the word. And they started saying anyone who's talking about Jesus is spreading good news. And they're evangelists. They're going out and telling people what this, the, thing, the, best, the thing that's best for them in their lives. You know, Rome would, Rome would do it at the end of a sword. And they'd be like, this is good news for you, right? And you'd say, yeah, yes, it's such good news, Rome. Thank you, Rome. You know. Uh, but when the Christians went out, they went out with open arms and they said, isn't this, isn't this thing that God is doing, this new thing that God is doing in Jesus, this invitation, that, isn't that great news? And they would say, it is good news. Uh, and so the, the four stories that we have in the New Testament that are about Jesus ended up being called Gospels. They're, they're good newses because these are stories of how it is Jesus became king and why that's such good news for us. Does that make sense? So basically, it gets used to mean a lot of different things. Right, right. I, I thought of how people talk about people being gospels, mm -hmm. but then you talk about it in so many different ways. Yeah, yeah basically, yeah. when you hear about it, just think of the word good news, mm -hmm. and it always, always, always today, I mean, you know, Rome's long gone, so we don't use it for anything else anymore today except for religion. And so today it just means uh, the good news about Jesus, right, and how it is that Jesus is good news for you and good news for me and good news for everyone. So we have certain people in the Bible that were... Well, they wrote books that are Gospels. So Matthew, when I say the Gospel of Matthew, it's right. the, the story Matthew wrote about Jesus. Okay? The story Luke wrote about Jesus. The story John wrote about Jesus. And why it's good news. And there's four of them in, in, our, in our Bible. There's also like a ton more that got written. But again, like we were just saying, like they didn't all make the cut. There's one, if you guys haven't ever read the Infancy Gospel of Thomas. It's, uh, so in the Gospel of Luke, uh, Jesus, like we have the birth narrative. And then it stops, and he, he appears, it does a thing in the temple, right? It, it kind of goes from baby to when he's 12, and then it, like, skips to when he's 30. So the infancy gospel of Thomas is, like, all the things that Jesus did between birth and 12. And it's crazy, you guys. It's super, <laughs> super fun to read. So go home and Google the infancy gospel of Thomas. It's different from the gospel of Thomas. And you can read all the really weird stuff Jesus did. Like, he gets into a fight with his teacher, and so... 
his teacher calls Joseph, and Joseph comes up, and he's like, your kid's causing trouble at school, and Joseph's like, I'm not his dad, I can't discipline him. And then <laughs> Jesus looks at the teacher, and he's like, if you don't understand the beta, how are you, or the alpha, how can you understand the beta? And the teacher's like, see, he does this stuff, I don't, no one knows what he's talking about. It's, it's pretty funny. <laughs> um, I won't spoil the rest of them, but yeah, that's, that's a great example of a gospel that was used by several church communities, but it was not... It was not found to be a book that was inspired by the larger, by the whole church. And so even though a few communities used it, it did not make it into the scriptures, obviously, since you didn't know that story. Um, okay. And then, okay, the, the, the other part of inspiration that, that is also really cool and that we need to talk about is that we believe not only did God inspire the writing of these texts, but we believe that on our end today, God inspires also the reading of the text. So if you are a person who is a Christian, if you, are, if you have the Holy Spirit present in your life, then when you read the scriptures, the Holy Spirit is guiding you there as well, which is really good news because that means the guy that wrote it is also the guy helping you read it. So um, we believe that. We believe that when we teach and preach and when we study things the way we're doing in here and, and when you're reading on your own, that the Holy Spirit is living and active and helping you to understand these things and giving you spiritual insights into these texts. So we're going to talk. We have a whole week on the Holy Spirit, so we'll get there. But... Uh, 2 Timothy 3 uh, says this, and it's a, a fairly often quoted verse about Scripture. But it says, All Scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us what to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. So that's, that's why we read Scripture. That's what we believe Scripture is good for. Uh, and kind of a fun thing about this is... Uh, when Paul was writing this, he did not know that he was writing the Bible, right? He was just writing a letter to his buddy Timothy. And he wrote this about scriptures, but they were, I mean, he wasn't, he wasn't like, so do what I say, Timothy, because, you know. I, he didn't know he was writing this about his own letters also, right? But because of the process of inspiration, because of how we know, come to understand our scriptures, then it becomes something that's also true for this letter and for, the, you know, the things that Paul wrote as well. That's kind of a cool thing, I think. Okay, so that's the first, that's the biggest part of the Wesleyan quadrilateral is the scriptures. We feel, yeah, Angie. What does Wesleyan mean? Uh, good question. Thank you for that transition. <laughs> We're quitting here. Yeah. Okay, before you, before, what did you just say? What did you just tell me that Paul didn't realize about his letters? Will you say that again? He didn't realize he was, I mean, he, he didn't realize he was writing the Bible. Okay. Right? So we have, we have a bunch of Paul's letters in the New Testament, right? Yeah. But when Paul was writing them, he did not, he wasn't like, by the way, staple this in the back of your Bible. Right, because I'm writing scripture. Like he didn't know that he was just writing a letter to a particular church to help them out in their particular situation. But they found it so useful that they passed it along, and then those churches passed it along, and it kept getting passed around. And eventually, people were like, you know, this Paul guy, he kind of knows some stuff. So they started, you know, collecting three or four of them together, and then passing them all along. And you know, over time, it became a part of our New Testament. But when he was writing it, you know, he didn't know. So yeah. They are. Yes. Some people say the Bible is infallible. How do you, what's your um, opinion of that? Well, so what our denomination says is, is again, infallible and inerrant and all those things with regard to salvation. Okay? What I have found in my experience is that most of the time when people want to use those words, they're trying to pick a fight. Uh, and, and, and they're basically drawing like a theological line in the sand and then they're like... Which side? Which side are you on, buddy? You know, and it's, 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 it's rarely about, you know, having a conversation or something like that. Uh, 
I think that when we talk about the Bible being inerrant and infallible, it's important to understand what's at stake in that argument for us. Uh, inerrant being there's no errors in it. Infallible being that it's, it's perfect, that it's not wrong about anything. Uh, so I have met people who are Christians who are geocentrists. They believe that the earth is the center of the universe and the sun revolves around the earth. And they believe that because the Bible says the sun rises and the sun sets. And the Bible is inerrant and infallible. Therefore, if the sun rises and the sun sets, that must mean the sun goes around the earth. Because otherwise it would say, let's go watch the earth spin tonight or what, you know, whatever you would say. Now, I think, I would, I would assume most of us in here would say, well, we, we have been in space shuttles. Well, we haven't personally been in space shuttles. Maybe you have. That's cool. I want to hear your story. Uh, but, you know, we've, like, we've seen the video of the Earth spinning and revolving around the sun and all that kind of stuff. And we, like, we understand that we still say the sun rises and the sun sets, even though we're not making a – that's not a scientific claim, right? We're, we're just sort of describing the world from our particular perspective. Uh, and so right there, I think, is that's where I get into it. Is it's like, well, what kinds of things are we claiming the Bible is inerrant and infallible about? If we're talking about salvation, yeah, I'll die on that hill. You know, I'll say to the, I'll say to the end of the end of the day that when it comes to how we go, how we come back into a saving relationship with God, the, the Bible is without error and it's it's perfect. Um, when it comes to being a scientific document or a historical document, I think there's some wiggle room uh, because I don't think that even the authors writing at the time were making those. They were not wanting to make those kinds of claims. What God's mainly concerned about is us coming back into a relationship with Him. Now, I'm not a scientist, and so I'm spectacularly unqualified to make those kinds of observations and claims. Um, I'm, you know, I'm more of a theologian. And so uh, you know, people much smarter than me and much more scientifically minded on both sides of that debate get in huge arguments that quickly leave me in the dust. So, uh, what, but, but again, what our, where our denomination rests and where I'm happy to stay is when it comes to salvation— Sure. Everything else, great discussion, but it's not worth dividing over. It's not worth, um, certainly not worth uh, falling out over. Does that make sense? Okay. Any, any I, that's, a, that's kind of a big can of worms, but it's open, so we might as well talk about it if anyone else has any questions. <laughs> All right. Let's move on to tradition then. Um, so tradition is how we tell and retell God's story. I started out with a quote from Paul in 1 Corinthians. He says, I passed on to you what was most important and what also has been passed on to me. So Paul, even himself, uh, received tradition, received teachings about Jesus, and then he passed them on to his church. And that's really what we're talking about. When we say that the second thing that we use to make sure that we're good theologians is tradition, what we really mean is the, the church tradition, Right? Uh, we have 2,000 years of people who have experienced the power of the resurrection of Jesus who have been thinking about that and talking about it and, and theologically thinking about all of these kinds of things. Uh, now, our particular tradition is called Wesleyan holiness. That's what I wrote down here. Uh, but you can think about it. I should have drawn a picture of this too, but I didn't. And we're going to come back. Actually, in the last week, we're going to spend a little bit more time on denominations and how they all split up theologically and all that kind of stuff. I thought that might be a little bit too much for week one. So um, there are three major channels of, of theology in the church. There's the Roman Catholic channel. There's the Orthodox channel, which would be like Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, all those Orthodox churches. 
Uh, and then there's the Protestant church. Okay. Now we are we are Protestants who also have some Catholic in our background, which again we'll talk about that more next time. But mainly we're Protestants. Okay. You can you can trace our line down through that. Uh, and particularly, we're Wesleyan holiness Protestants. What that means is uh, we, are, we, we are in the theological tradition that was founded by John Wesley, who is the founder of the Methodist Church. So the Methodists are our parent, our parent denomination. They're the ones that we, we came out of and owe the most to theologically. And they were founded by John Wesley. Uh, if you want the genealogy, he was, he was Anglican which is the church that broke off of the Catholic Church from uh, England, right, with Henry VIII and all of his wives and all of that, right? That, that was the Anglican Church when they broke off in the 1500s. So Wesley was an Anglican, then he founded Methodism, and then we broke off from Methodism uh, a couple hundred years after that. Now, what that means about our particular theology is that it has, it has three characteristics, three things that were characteristic of Wesley that are characteristic of his theological traditions, things that we really love and reasons that we are Wesleyan. One, and you're going to wonder if this is true at this point, but I promise it is, is that our theology is very practical, okay? And what we mean by that is that we believe that, that following Jesus makes a real difference in our daily lives, okay? That you should be able to see and tangibly experience the difference that following God makes instead of not following God. Okay, it's not just some kind of abstract thing you can give mental assent to and say, yeah, I believe those things, but I don't actually like do anything with them, right? Wesley was very, very practical, and he believed that if you're following God, that should make a difference, okay? The second thing is that our theology should be very loving. And what I mean specifically by that, and again, we're going to come back to the, all of this stuff, so don't worry. This is kind of the fire hose tonight, right? Uh, what, it, what we mean by that is that Jesus very specifically defines love in the Gospel of John as self-sacrifice, Okay, greater love has no one than that he would give up his life for his friends. Okay, that's how Jesus not only defines love, but also modeled it. Right, and so what we see in Jesus is what love looks like, which is sacrificing yourself, being willing to give of yourself for someone else. And our theology, if we are truly Wesleyan, should be that. Wesley was all about us becoming more loving by participating in the love of God. And that was a key cornerstone of his theology. And as we do theology, it should make us more like that. Really, that's another way of saying that it's going to make us look more like God, right? We haven't gotten to God as love. That's next week. But we'll be able to come back and say that. It's like really what we're saying when our theology makes us more loving is it makes us more like God. It makes us, more, it makes us givers. It makes us people who would give of ourselves for the good of someone else because that's what God does. Okay? And then the last thing is that our theology should make us generous, and what this specifically means, the way that Wesley used it, is Wesley was not about drawing boundary lines, with other, particularly with other denominations. Okay? Uh, he had friends in all kinds of other denominations, and he was not afraid to celebrate the good things that he saw in their denominations. Uh, he, was, he was very much about celebrating the things that we have in common, not camping out on the things that divide us. Okay, and, and again, if we are good Wesleyan theologians, we should not be afraid to spend some time in conversation with our Baptist brothers and sisters or our Catholic brothers and sisters or our Methodist brothers and sisters. Or, you know, all the other different, if you know any Greek Orthodox people or any of the Orthodox brothers and sisters. Okay. Uh, and so that, that, was a key, that was a key thing about Wesley was he was always willing to learn from people who thought differently from the way he did. Uh, and so we shouldn't be afraid either to be generous and to celebrate uh, what, we, what, we, what good we find in our, in our fellow denominations. And again, just like celebrate the things we have in common, not so much camp out on the things that divide us. 
So any question about tradition? That's what it, that's, that's a real small part of what it means to be Wesleyan holiness. This is, this is what I'm teaching out of. I'm teaching out of Wesleyan holiness theology. So what you're getting uh, is going to be mostly Wesleyan holiness. I'll be referencing other theological positions, and just so you can see how they're different as we move through this. Uh, some of you may have been raised in other traditions and had other experiences, and so you could feel free to, to ask questions or to say, well, is it like this or is it like that? And um, but this is what we keep coming back to. This is what, this is what the Church of the Nazarene is. So, um, good. Ready for, yeah, Jesse. What um, other denominations are Wesleyan and uh, The Church of God Anderson, which is based right across the the way in Indiana, Anderson, Indiana, is the Wesleyan. It's a denomination called Wesleyan. Uh, uh, it's not Methodist, but it, they're called Wesleyan is, is holiness. The, the holiness denominations tend to be smaller. Like, you'll find just little pockets of them all over the place. The Nazarene is the largest of them. And actually, the, the Church of the Nazarene was formed by a bunch of these little holiness denominations all kind of glomming onto each other and forming a, a big cooperative network of churches. And that's, that's where the Church of the Nazarene came from. So, yeah, Doug. But it's interesting that, that today we would not say that Methodists are Wesleyan and Holy. Yeah. yeah. They're not Wesleyan and Holy. Yeah. Yeah, so the difference there, uh, Doug, Doug pointed out that Wesleyans, or Methodists today, are Wesleyan, but they're not holiness. And, and that is actually a, a sort of a. Sort of too bad, right? Because when we look at the life of Wesley, the reason we identify with him is because we think he'd really be on board with the holiness part of it. But the holiness part of it means having that real, powerful, and transformative experience of the Holy Spirit. You know, and, and, and understanding that the Spirit is making an active difference in our lives and transforming us and shaping us and bringing us closer and closer to looking like Jesus. And yeah, that's not as... Uh, it's not as emphasized in, in, I think, the overall Methodist shirt. Now, I have... I have some amazing friends who are Methodist pastors and they do talk about these things. But yeah, as a denomination, that's not as much what they value anymore. You know, the Methodists are, when you start, do, we'll do, I promise, we'll do a theological family tree. But the, the Methodists are more like the mainline Protestant, you know, with like the, the Presbyterians and the Lutherans and that kind of stuff. So that's, that's where they end up. Um, and so you, you do have some who look more like holiness denominations, but they're not, they're not the norm. So, good. Anyone else? Got a reason? Okay. So I would suspect that reason is probably the one that scared most people away from theology in the first place, because we think, uh, you know, we think of reason. We think of like big words, complex arguments, like things like that. Like we think smart intelligence, right? That's like that's what we think of, and. Really, what it more is, is when we're thinking about what it means to have good theology, to think theologically, what we're really saying is that our theology needs to make sense. It needs to be coherent. You know, the different parts of it need to fit together in a way that feels right to us. It needs to, it needs to all make sense in our heads. And if it doesn't, uh, we're not going to hold on to it very long. Um, in fact, I've met tons of people who have more or less turned their back on Christianity because of perceived conflicts that they either don't want to or can't reconcile, like something like, why do we pray if God already knows what's going to happen? Or if you're in a denomination that doesn't believe in free will, why do we pray if you think God causes everything? Like if God's already made up his mind and there's, it's just going to happen, then what's the point of prayer, right? And if, if now, you might have a good answer, locked and loaded, ready to go, right? But stop for a minute 
and just say, like, that's a, that's a perceived contradiction. And if you genuinely can't figure out a good way to answer that, that's going to cause you problems. Because Christianity both values the sovereignty of God, right? The idea that God is the king over everything. And it really values prayer. Like, that's something we're pretty big on. And so if you have these two really important ideas that seem to be uh, illogical, that seem to clash, that don't seem to make a coherent universe, it's going gonna, it's gonna to create some mental dissonance for you. And if you're a person who can't resolve that well, it's, you're, you're going to throw up your hands. Uh, you know, something else like, you know, we say God is love, but then God sends people to hell, right? That causes problems for a lot of people. And that's been in, in the conversation lately, right? Those are two seemingly contradictory things. And if you genuinely perceive them as a conflict and you can't reconcile that well, that's going to create problems for you. Now, again, that doesn't mean people haven't reconciled it. There's lots and lots and lots of books doing just that, right? But, it, but my point is, like, whether we admit it or not, reason is a big part of our theology. We need a coherent, rational universe. We need a universe where things make sense. And when they don't, that causes problems for us. And so it's okay. We should just acknowledge that, and we shouldn't be afraid of that. Um, what, I, what I like to tell people a lot, because as soon as you start talking about doubting and asking questions and things like that, a lot of Christians get, uh, it's totally okay. Okay? What our scriptures teach us is that Jesus is the truth. And so if that's true, if it's true that Jesus is the truth, then, then when we seek after truth, we're going to find Jesus. And we should not be afraid of asking questions. God is a God of order, not a God of chaos. We'll see that next week. Okay, that's very clear in the scriptures. And God wants us to inhabit a universe that is coherent and that makes sense to us. That's what we are created for. And so we don't have to be afraid to ask questions. Now, there are good ways and bad ways to ask questions, right? There are prideful and humble ways to ask questions. And so we should certainly, we should certainly approach our questioning faithfully, but we don't have to be afraid of questions. Uh, and in fact, I guess for me, for me personally, the most growth that I've ever experienced is when I ask those really hard questions and then I dive into the scriptures and cr the Christian theological tradition trying to figure it out. You know, when, when I don't just go to someone that can give me the easy answer, but when I really wrestle with it and make it my own, like that's when, that's when I have like the deeper encounters with God because all of a sudden it becomes really real. You know, and, and it's something I, it's like I earned it, you know, it's like I, I wrestled with this and I figured it out and, and I you know, prayed about it and, and, and wrestled over the scriptures and dug into, you know, what different Christians from all throughout history have thought about this question. And all of a sudden it becomes much, much more real and powerful. And I see in a deeper way how this is God's story, you know, and what, what that looks like for me. So again, that's why in here, I hope that when you come upon these questions, you don't have to be afraid of them or worry about them, uh, but, but they can inspire you to ask those questions well um, because the answers are just, sometimes the answers are more questions, okay? But sometimes they're really cool answers, right? Uh, the book of Job is my go-to about that, right? Job is questioning all the way through the book, and when he gets to the end, he's not reprimanded for it. When God shows up, he's not mad at Job. He's not mad that Job was asking questions. He's a little bit mad at his tone, okay? But the, the act of questioning was not inherently sinful for Job to do. And if you know the story of Job, 
he uh, was pretty understandable. You know, he had had some really nasty things happen in his life for no good reason. And he thought he was doing the right thing and he couldn't understand basically why bad things would happen to good people, which is a question I think we've all wrestled with, right? So, so the act of questioning, the act of reason uh, is, is a good thing. Uh, when Jesus talks about the greatest commandment, he quotes Deuteronomy and he says, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and all your strength. And so uh, I, have, I have encountered some Christian traditions that encourage people to shut their brains off and just believe. And we're not one of those traditions. And I don't see that anywhere in the scriptures. I mean, faith, we're all about having faith and believing, but it's not supposed to be a dumb faith. It doesn't have to be. Uh, God is big enough for all of our questions. And, and if you are a question, now not everyone, not everyone is a questioner, right? Some people are happy to just take things at face value. And that's, that's great, right? I'm, about, I'm like that with my car. I take it to a mechanic and I'm like, it's making a noise. And they, fix, they tell me what's wrong with it. And I go, okay. And I'm like, well, could it have been the alternator rotator cup? You know, I'm like, okay. Like I totally take it at face value, right? I know some of you are judging me real hard right now and that's okay. All right. Um, so it's not, it's not bad if you don't, if you're not a questioner, if you're not someone who struggles with this guy. That doesn't mean you're like dumb or lacking or anything like that. But for those of you who do question, for those of you who do feel sometimes like, like things don't quite add up, that's okay. Uh, and it's okay for you to ask questions and for you to try to figure those answers out. Uh, and, and that can be a wonderful spiritually enriching exercise. And it's, it's a part of our theological heritage to do that. Uh, we have some wonderful thinkers in the Wesleyan holiness tradition. Uh, people who think very, very deeply and, and eloquently. So you're, you're going to be in good company. Any question about that? Reason? Uh, one thing I, I want to share, uh, one quote from the Apostle Paul in Romans 1.20. He said, Ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and the sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and his divine nature. So there in Romans, Paul says that God, basically God gave us the world so it's a way that we know God. And, and by exploring the world and, and, and getting to know the world better and how the world works better, we can actually know more about the character of God. Uh, so all of you sciencey-minded people in here, hopefully that's very encouraging for you. Right? Again, that, that, that uh, the natural world is a gift to us from God and it's an invitation to know him better. And by knowing the world better, we know the character of God better. Okay, last, the last part of the Wesleyan quadrilateral, I tried to draw a hand, and we've covered how bad I am at drawing, so I just drew a stick figure. Um, but it's experience, uh, that we would be fully engaged in God's story. And so um, what we're really talking about here is a personal experience of God. So in, uh, later in Romans, Paul writes, um, all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. So he's talking about the Holy Spirit. So you have not received a spirit that made you fearful slaves. Instead, you received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Now we call him Abba Father, for his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. There are moments in our lives where we have these inexplicable encounters with God. And particularly after you've chosen to follow Jesus, there are just things that happen where you, you have this weird encounter with God, and it's wonderful, but you can't really describe it to people. And when you try to, you sort of feel a little bit silly because you're just like, oh, you kind of just had to be there. Um, for me, uh, I'll, often that'll happen when I'm in nature. 
uh, like when I'm hiking or particularly if I can get to the ocean or to the mountains, like those are just places for me where I'm just transported. And I feel just a, a powerful experience of God that's very other. Sometimes it happens in weird places. Like I was at a, a Jimmy E. World concert one time, which is a band that I really like. And they're not Christian, right? They're just a good band. They make great music. And in the middle of one of their songs, like I started like unconsciously lifting my hands like I was like at a worship, in a worship setting. And, and I caught myself and I was like, whoa, what is happening? I'm not, at a, I'm not in a worship context right now. But yet I was having this like really profound spiritual experience of God. And I didn't really understand it, so I've spent a lot of time thinking about it, wondering about that experience and what, what that was all about. And what I've really come to peace with is that these are people who, who create what I consider to be really beautiful art. Okay? And we're going to talk more about this in the weeks to come, but when we create, we are living in God's image, whether we know it or not, because God is a creator, and we are created with the capacity to create. And so I think there are lots of people who are acting out and participating in the image of God when they don't, even though they don't realize it because they are choosing to create. And that's, that's a, a desire that's so deep down inside us that even sin can't erase it. And so when I was watching these people create, they were, they were celebrating God even when they didn't realize it. And I think, that, I think that happens. I see that happen more than just in that one concert experience. And there was something in my spirit that responded to that. And I didn't, without thinking about it, and, and when I kind of caught myself, I was like, whoa, okay, I don't know, I don't know what's happening right now, right? But I think that, that there are moments when we catch these glimpses of God out at work in the world where we don't expect to find him, you know, because God's in church with us, right? Not out with the pagans and the sinners, but that's not true. That's not actually how we talk about God uh, theologically. That's not how we understand God theologically. Uh, the, the Wesleyan tradition believes in something called provenient grace. Provenient grace. What that actually means is, is grace that's ahead of us. Okay? And so the idea here, and this is something, again, you see multiple places in the scriptures, is that God is not behind us. God is out in front of us, calling us forward. Uh, if you are here on Sunday, we talked about this a little bit, right? But, like, that makes sense, and we, we acknowledge that, whether you believe it or not, because we talk about following Jesus, and you can't, you can't follow someone who's behind you. And so we understand that God is ahead of us, out calling us forward. What we don't always connect the dots to, though, is that what that means is that God is at work everywhere in the world, whether the church is there or not. God is at work in other people, whether they realize it or not. God is at work, even in other faith systems, calling them to repentance, calling them to find Jesus, whether they know it or not. Uh, if you were part of my world religions class, you know, we spent a lot of time talking about that when we would talk about each of these religions. We would say, here are, th- here are truths that their religion celebrates. And we can claim those truths in the name of Jesus. And we can say that these are seeds of the gospel, seeds of the good news about Jesus, that are already at work in their religion. They don't realize it. And if they realized it, they would become Christian, right? They don't realize it, but we can see that because we have theological eyes. We have spiritual eyes. And so we can, we can begin to discern where God is at work in the world in places that, that we good church-going folk would say, God doesn't belong, right? But that's what's, that's what's awesome about God is that God has already gone there. God is already in those places. God is already working. And the call, the invitation to us is to join with God. And, and when we begin to see the world theologically, 
we can begin to take those steps. We can begin to discern where God is already at work among people who don't know him. And we can be the people who begin to identify that. We can, when they say, you know, uh, you probably have heard Pastor Keevan say this before, like, oh, what a weird coincidence, right? And we can say, well, maybe. Or maybe there's something else going on here behind this coincidence, deeper than that, right? Maybe it's more than you think it is. We can begin to form those relationships where because we see the world theologically, because we think theologically, because we have learned to perceive the world through spiritual eyes, we can, we can start to see those things that they would be blind to, that before we would have been blind to, right? But we, because we expect God to be working where we don't expect God to be working, we can begin to see those things happening, and we can begin to celebrate them, and then that's where we start to participate in the gospeling. That's where we become evangelists, right? We're, we're announcing good news. We're saying, hey, look, isn't that cool? Isn't this cool that this thing that God is doing, that God is reaching out to you, that God is wanting to connect with you, that God is already doing good things in your life? So that's, what, that's really what we mean by personal experience. Not only that we have experienced God and that, that the Holy Spirit and our spirit cry out together and celebrate together, but also that we can see God in the experiences around us, right? In places that, uh, you know, it's not obviously not in the scripture because uh, they didn't have rock concerts in the scripture, but I found God at a rock concert. Right? Some stuff like that. And it's not necessarily in our Wesleyan holiness tradition. And sometimes it doesn't make sense at first. Right? But we have these real experiences where the Holy Spirit is just clearly at work. And so that, that is, that's that other leg of the quadrilateral. And so the way this works all together is that all of these inform our theology. You know, when we have an experience, we stack it up against the scriptures and say, well, is it, is there, is it possible that God is, is there any place in the scripture that God is at work where God's people didn't expect to find him? Yeah, lots of places that's like that, you know? Are there times in the scriptures that people, you know, things haven't made a lot of sense, but people just kept kind of pushing and, and eventually they kept, they, it all folded out? Yeah, there's lots of that. Right? Again, Job's a great example of that. You know, and, and can, can our tradition help us to understand how we read some of these difficult passages, how we make sense of that? Are there minds and thinkers and prayers in our tradition who have walked the same journey that we have that are maybe a little bit further than us that can kind of act as spiritual mentors that we can you know, read their books and see their lives and they can, they can begin to shape us even though they may be long dead? Yeah, sure, of course. And so all of these things work together to help us begin to think theologically. We don't, we don't rely on any one of them. We rely on all four of them. And we say that a, a good holistic theology involves all of these things. You know, we're faithful to our tradition. We think about these things and we try to make sure that they make sense. And we, we wrestle with things. We're not afraid of the questions. You know, we, we engage in these real personal experiences. And we, we think about them and we take them to heart and we let them shape us. And then we are a people of the scriptures. You know, we recognize that this story that God has been telling since in the beginning is still going on today and that we are a part of it. And so hopefully when we do this, our theology is very practical. It makes a real difference in our lives. We're not just ivory tower eggheads, right? Ivory tower eggheads. Yeah. It makes us more loving. It makes us more willing to give to other people. It makes us more like Jesus. 
And it makes us more generous. We're not afraid of people who have ideas that are different from ours. We're willing to consider them. We're willing to learn from them because we believe that Jesus is truth. And if we're moving closer to truth, then we're moving closer to Jesus. We can do these things, then we can all be good, not just theologians, because we're all already theologians, but we can be good theologians. We can be theologians who ultimately are looking more like Jesus. And we're practical, and we're loving, and we're generous. So that's what we're going to be focusing on for the next 10 weeks. Actually, 12 weeks, because we've got some breaks. So, any questions before we go over the schedule? I know that was a lot. So you probably want to go rest your heads or your fingers if you've been taking lots of notes. Okay, well, let me give you a rough outline, and I cannot overemphasize rough, of the weeks. Now, I went ahead and put the breaks in there, and I want to tell you a little bit about them as we get to them. But uh, this week we did Words About God. Next week we're going to be talking about God. Who is God? Who is this God who created the heavens and the earth? So we're going to be talking about the Trinity. We're going to be talking about how all three of the uh, Father, Son, and Spirit relate together. Be lots more pictures. Um, week three, we're going to be talking about creation and humanity and what those look like and who we are and who we are in relationship to creation and who we are in relationship to God. Uh, the fourth week, we're going to be talking about humanity and sin. What happened? You know, the problem in the story. Any, any good story has to have conflict, right? And so uh, we're going to be talking about what that conflict looks like from a theological perspective, not only what it looked like in Genesis 3, but what it looks like through the scriptures and then what it looks like today. Then the week of the second, I will be gone. Uh, I will be at Mount Vernon doing a revival up there. And so um, I'm going to have someone bring you guys pizza and we'll, we'll figure out some fun activities to do. But that'll be a good week. You have to listen to me all the time, so it'll be a good week to listen to each other a little bit and get to know each other a little bit more and eat free food. Um, then we'll come back for three more weeks. We'll do uh, the covenants, which is essentially going to be God's interaction through the Old Testament. We're going to look at, uh, basic, basically, this is going to be the week of why the Old Testament matters. Okay, uh, so that's going to be, I, it's actually going to be a super fun week if you don't believe me, I promise it will be. Uh, why do we, you know, why is the Old Testament in there? Why don't we just go to the Jesus stuff where things get real good? Uh, what's that all about? So uh, then week six, we'll go to the Jesus stuff. Uh, we'll go to Jesus and what, who Jesus is and what, what his life and death and resurrection were all about. Then we'll be on uh, to the Holy Spirit and what the Holy Spirit is and who, how the Holy Spirit functions in our faith and all of that. Then we'll take another break because that's the weekend. That's uh, Beaver Creek's. Uh, Halloween thing, will, the whole church will be taken over. If you remember last year, it was a madhouse. And so we're not going to try to be in this room right by all the windows. And uh, We'll probably just figure out how we can be serving during that time. So that'll be a week off for us there. And then we'll have three more weeks uh, leading up to, uh, to the end. So we'll do the church, the theology of the church. What is this thing that we do all every week? Uh, why is it important? Why does it matter? Then we'll do a week on the end, the theology of last things. Uh, which will be fun. And then we'll do a wrap-up week where we'll kind of pull everything back together. That's where we'll talk about all the different denominations and kind of the different theological. By that point, you will be much better equipped to understand why the difference between like Calvinism and Arminianism and Wesleyanism and Catholicism and you know, all that stuff. And so we'll spend some time charting out a theological family tree. Now, uh, at the bottom there, I put all of the different ways you can contact me. I put my email address. I put my phone so you can text me or call me. I put Facebook and Twitter if you're a social media type. And uh, again, I told you I was recording this podcast. 
and or I'm recording this and podcasting this class, so that's where you that's where by tomorrow morning you'll be able to start accessing these. So if you if you do have to miss a week, uh, by Thursday morning you'll be able to get on and download the episode and listen to it uh, if you have a smartphone or on your computer or whatever. So uh, I'm sure none of you will miss any of them. I'm sure you'll come and hang on my every word. I'm sure I'm sure that that we'll not miss any. No, I'm just kidding. I know that we all got busy lives, and so this is just a way to hopefully for you to be able to feel a little bit of freedom. Uh, and not feel like you have to miss anything. So I just want to say thank you, you guys. I really appreciate you giving me your time, and I make a commitment to you that I'm going to do my best not to waste it. Uh, this is Theology for the Rest of Us, and so if I am over your head, you have to stop me and ask me questions, because I won't know otherwise. And the rule, it's always true, that if you have a question, at least three other people in the room also have the same question, and they're just scared to ask it. So help them out. And ask your question, and they will go, oh, man, I'm so glad they asked the question because I really wanted to know, but I was never going to speak up. So speak up. Uh, and uh, because really, if, if, if I lose you and you don't get something, then I've wasted your time. And I do not want to waste your time. I want this to be very beneficial and encouraging. So uh, let me pray for us, and then we can go. And I already kept you over a little bit. Appreciate your extra time tonight. Uh, God, we're so grateful for this opportunity that we have to come together and to learn together and to begin the, the process of thinking theologically. Uh, we do confess together tonight that you are the God who created everything, and we are grateful for that. Uh, help us as we move through this class together to see the world more theologically, to begin to think about things more theologically, and to begin to discern where you are at work in the world and how you are calling us to participate in that. Uh, help us to become more loving, more generous, and help, uh, help us to see how following you makes a real difference in our lives. Uh, we love you, and we thank you again for the privilege of gathering, and we pray all of these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Thanks, everyone. I'll see you next week for Who is God?